to the Damascus Road podcast. On the road to Damascus, Paul had a radical encounter with Jesus and his life was changed forever. That is what we hope and pray for here. Now, on to this week's episode. So this past summer, as many of you might be aware, uh, my husband Tyler and I welcomed our first child, Joseph. Um, He's super cute. He's right there. Um, And so it was about this time last year that I found out I was pregnant. And so in between bouts of terrible morning sickness, Tyler and I uh, were working together to figure out what kinds of things we needed to get for our baby. Um, And in this, we started making a baby registry. And you might be thinking, that's really early to be making a baby registry. And you might be right. Um, But my morning sickness was so bad that at some points, I would have to leave a Zoom meeting at work to go throw up and then come back. And when you're doing that every day, you need something to keep you motivated. So my thing was our baby registry. But like all big life transitions in kind of a modern capitalistic society, anything like that comes with a whole boatload of information and advertising on all the things that you're supposed to be buying. So clothes, car seats, diapers, toys, it goes on. But it's not even just the things you should buy, but what kinds of those things when it comes to babies. I mean, you could get regular diapers, but what about organic diapers? Maybe you should do cloth diapers instead. I guess you could get those toys from Target, but really what you should be getting are these expensive high-end European wooden toys that are going to, like, I don't know, make your kid's IQ higher or something. But what I really spiraled on was strollers. There are so, so many different kinds of strollers out there. I don't know if you guys are aware of this. And they are at every price point and complexity level you can imagine. You can get strollers that you clip your car seat into. You can get strollers that fold up really small. You can get strollers that start off for one kid, and then you can add another kid on there later if you just really want to be planning ahead. There's travel strollers and jogging strollers and luxury strollers, and there's even strollers for pets. Um, And I'm sorry to both of our cats, but no, absolutely not. They don't get a stroller, too. I was slowly losing my mind. As it was, I could not believe how much stuff one tiny human already needed. I had so many tabs open trying to review every stroller option known to man. I scrolled through every Amazon review there was. And obviously, at some point, I settled on one that's back there. Um, And it does successfully do its job of toting my tiny human around. But I think the stress that this caused kind of points to a larger problem. Our relationship with our stuff can get out of control. Recently, I heard a quote uh, from an IKEA executive saying that we've reached peak stuff in the Western world, which is a pretty unexpected thing to hear from like a furniture retail company, but it certainly feels accurate. In our modern, Western, relatively affluent context, we have reached peak stuff in our lives. The average size of homes in the U.S. has grown larger and larger, and we consume far more resources than we ever did before, and yet many of us still think, there's just not enough space. We look for better organizational systems, for slimmer hangers, more boxes to keep all our things in. We have a whole store called the Container Store. And all of that is in an effort to try and control the buzz of clutter around us. But it's not just the amount of stuff we have or the amount of space that it takes up. We all live in this kind of instant gratification paradigm where as soon as we want something, we should get it. And in the background, uh, oh, but making clothes or food or furniture or any of those things that we might be desiring takes time. But you wouldn't know that based on the presence of Amazon two-day shipping. But in the background of all of this, of the variety of clothes that we see at the mall, of all of the perfect-looking produce at the grocery store that exists no matter what season it is, there's this darker world of exploitation and environmental harm that's holding up that system in which we get what we want when we want it. 
And not only is this wreaking havoc on the marginalized workers across the world who are forced to make these things or on the environment itself, but it's starting to wreak havoc on our souls too. Just one example is the amount average debt in the US is huge. And that financial stress takes a toll on our mental and physical health. And it's not just our stuff. Our calendars are full, our inboxes are bursting, and there seems to be new, no end of new media content to consume. And we're inundated with messaging about how great this is, right? Uh, we have all these options at our fingertips. There's so many cool things that we could watch or do or buy, but doesn't seem to be making us that much happier. I know that when I see the endless queue of Netflix and all the new things coming up each month, it just starts to give me anxiety, not joy. Our outward environment and behaviors are reflecting more of our internal turmoil. On the outside, we have too much stuff, too many obligations, too many distractions. And on the inside, we're feeling tense, unfocused, and constantly tired. Clearly, there's a disconnect between who we want to be and this life that we'd like to be living and where we actually find ourselves. But how did we get to this point where our lives are so overfilled? It didn't just appear out of nowhere. I want us to consider how our stuff and our consumption came to consume us. Because it's not just about our things, but many of our issues in this area grow out of our relationship to our possessions. About 100 years ago, you wouldn't have seen advertising, but the advertising was really about like, the actual qualities of the product. You would have seen that it was made from wood or that it was long-lasting or things of that nature. But after the Great Depression and the economic boom that came with World War II, um, we started to reach this point where uh, productive output was outstripping consumer need. We just didn't need all the things that were being made. So companies decided to change tactics. Economist Victor Lebo put it this way. Our enormously productive economy demands that we make consumption our way of life, that we convert the buying and use of goods into rituals, that we seek our spiritual satisfaction and our ego satisfaction in consumption. We need things consumed, burned up, worn out, replaced, and discarded at an ever-increasing rate. Does that sound a little bit familiar? Our modern advertising plays right to this theme, shifting us away from buying things because we actually need them and buying things instead to try and find our satisfaction in them. And we might think that we're too rational and free-thinking to fall for these kinds of tricks. But psychology and history shows us that we are in fact much more vulnerable to external manipulation and internal self-deception than we would really like to admit. The thing is that when we are inundated constantly with images of what the world tells us the good life is, it's really, really hard to not get sucked into that. Theologian Richard Foster called consumerism a rival religious philosophy about what constitutes blessedness. Whether it's a car commercial showing a happy family and their smiling kids and perfect golden retriever on a camping trip, or an Instagram model with a, or an Instagram ad with a gorgeous model wearing a trendy new pair of jeans, all of these are showing us a philosophy of blessedness, the good life that we could have if we just decided to pay for it. And our culture keeps telling us that money and possessions and a certain kind of lifestyle will make us happy. But I think a lot of us are starting to realize that that's probably not the case. More stuff, more work, more in our schedules, this does not lead us to the good life. Instead, that external propaganda of excess and the internal greed that we all have sabotages the kind of life that we actually crave. Jesus called this the deceitfulness of wealth. And early scripture writers spoke about this often. 
1 Timothy 6.9 warns that people who long to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. Hebrews 13 goes into a similar theme. It says in Hebrews 13.5, don't love money, be satisfied with what you have, for God has said, I will never fail you. I will never abandon you. And the writer of Hebrews is getting at something really critical here. Our preoccupation with money, possessions, or image is very rarely just that. There's a deeper lie here about where our security and happiness come from, one that has to be answered with the truth that God will not abandon or fail us. We don't have to try and build our own blessedness. And recently I heard an interview with Matt Paxton, who's one of the showrunners from the reality TV show Hoarders. Um, and if you're not aware of what Hoarders is, um, it was a show that profiled uh, people who were unable to part with their physical possessions. And so it accumulated in their house and caused a great deal of harm to both their physical environments and their mental health. And Paxton in this uh, emphasized this inextricable link that he saw between hoarding and grief and trauma. One example that he brought up is children of the Great Depression that he had worked with, who cannot let things go out of a fear of scarcity. What if I need it? What if my family has to go without? What if something catastrophic happens and I suddenly don't have to hold, I suddenly need all these things. I have to hold on to it. And I don't mean to oversimplify hoarding at all here. It is a deeply sad and painful little manifestation of very complex mental health and trauma issues. But I do think that Paxton's uh, words about that link between grief and trauma and hoarding shows us the link that we have between what we believe at our core and then how, what, how we interact with our possessions and our physical environment. There's more going on here than just a dragon hoarding its things because it can. When we believe lies about what will make us happy or keep us safe or what the good life is, we live out those lies not only in our stuff but in our schedules and our words and throughout our lives. And it all started with something that we believed in our hearts and in our minds. And so when Jesus addresses our relationship to wealth and possessions, those are the kinds of lies that he's taking aim at. Let's take a look at his teaching on this in Luke 12. So here, Jesus is preaching to a large crowd when he's suddenly interrupted. Someone called out from the crowd, teacher, please tell my brother to divide our father's estate with me. Jesus replied, friend, who made me a judge over you to decide such things as that? Then he said, beware, guard against every kind of greed. Life is not measured by how much you own. First, Jesus addresses this man's expectations of him directly. That is not what I have come here for. Then he goes a step further, confronting the deeper issue at play here. Jesus warns against greed and the desire to measure our life's worth by our possessions. These lies about what the good life is have entrenched a spark of greed in this man's heart, and he wants Jesus to sanction that unhealthy desire based on what is socially acceptable in that time. Make my brother give me the money I think that I'm owed. This man recognizes that Jesus has authority, but he wants that authority to serve him. But Jesus confronts this disordered desire with the truth. Don't fall for the lies of greed. The good life is not found in our stuff. And he unpacks this further in a parable. Then he told them a story. A rich man had a fertile farm that produced fine crops. He said to himself, what should I do? I don't have room for all my crops. Then he said, 
I know. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. Then I'll have room enough to store all my wheat and other goods. And then I'll step back and say to myself, my friend, you have enough stored away for years to come. Now take it easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, you will die this very night. Then who will get everything you worked for? Yes, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth, but not have a rich relationship with God. In Jewish culture, to the audience that Jesus would have been speaking to, the socially correct response to all of this wealth would have been to give it to the poor, blessing others with what God had so clearly blessed him with. But instead, this rich farmer makes himself the source of his blessing, my crops, my barns, my pleasure, and chooses to hoard his wealth, even tearing down his barns and creating more waste in his greed. He is self-absorbed, calling his wealth fully his own when really it is all a gift from God. The farmer should share what he has been blessed with, but instead chooses waste and overconsumption. And here Jesus is pointing out the reality that any that reliance on anything that pulls us away from God is simply not a smart way to live. He even says a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth, but not have a rich relationship with God. And Jesus emphasizes this again in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. No one can serve two masters, for you will hate one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. And I want to notice Jesus, I want you to notice Jesus' wording here. He says, cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. Not that you should not or that, well, you know, it's probably not a good idea, but that you straight up cannot do it. It's just not possible. In other translations, money is actually translated as mammon, which is referring to a god of riches of the time. And this is the only other god that Jesus actually calls out by name. That's how serious he is about this topic. Jesus is our best authority on reality as it truly is, because he is God and the author of all reality. And so his teachings give us mental maps of life that lead to flourishing. So when Jesus tells us, you cannot serve God in money, you have to choose. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Choosing wealth over God is just not an intelligent way to live, and you are not going to find joy or satisfaction there. When Jesus says this, he's not just saddling us with arbitrary rules, but giving us an accurate lay of the land when it comes to our soul's inner dynamic around consumption. Then turning to his disciples, Jesus said, that is why I tell you not to worry about everyday life, whether you have enough food to eat or enough clothes to wear, for life is more than food and your body more than clothing. Look at the ravens. They don't plant or harvest or store food in barns, for God feeds them, and you are far more valuable to him than any birds. And can all your worries add a single moment to your life? And if worry can't accomplish a little thing like that, what's the use of worrying over bigger things? Look at the lilies and how they grow. They don't work or make their clothing, and yet Solomon in all his glory was not dressed as beautifully as they are. And if God cares so wonderfully for flowers that are here today and thrown into the fire tomorrow, he will certainly care for you. Why do you have so little faith? Don't be concerned about what to eat and what to drink. Don't worry about such things. Here, over and over again, Jesus is directly tying our attachment to possessions to worry. When we put our stuff or our financial security or our accolades or our busy schedules at the center of our lives, we doom our souls to anxiety because anything other than Jesus at the center can be taken away. 
Jesus pairs this with reminders of God's goodness towards us. Do not worry, for God will care for you. Don't put you own, what you own or what you consume at the center, because it cannot satisfy you. Only God can really do that. He continues, these things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers all over the world, but your father already knows your needs. Seek the kingdom of God above all else, and he will give you everything you need. So don't be afraid, little flock, for it gives your father great happiness to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to those in need. This will store up treasure for you in heaven. And the purses of heaven never get old or develop holes. Your treasure will be safe. No thief can steal it and no moth can destroy it. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. Here, Jesus is giving us some really important pieces of wisdom on how we respond to the siren song of consumption and its associated anxiety. First, he tells us to seek the kingdom of God above all else, and then everything else will fall into place. Jesus is calling us to run after God and the kingdom, to place that at the center first, and then the rest will follow. And that's, you know, easier said than done, but we're going to get to that. The other big piece is that last line, wherever the, your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. What you invest yourself in will come to dominate your heart. The message translation says, the place where your treasure is, is the place you will most want to be and end up being. As Devin taught us last week, we are all in the process of being formed into people of something. Where our treasure is, where our investment of ourselves, our time, and our resources goes, will shape us. Here, Jesus tells us that seeking the kingdom is where we find true satisfaction. More stuff means more worry and less of what God has for you in the kingdom. Less stuff, less attachment to our possessions and the distractions of this world means more of what we actually crave and what those distractions can never really provide. And put together, these verses help define the practice that leads us out of consumption and into contentment, the practice of simplicity. Simplicity was actually a really core practice of the church until relatively recently. And over time, it's been known by a few different names, um, not just simplicity, but frugality, simple living, and even minimalism to some. But simplicity as we're defining it is not a style of design or some cool new organizational system or just a trendy buzzword. Rather, it is a deeper way of living that has existed in some way in every major era and in many religious iterations. It often comes up as a counterbalance to a culture of excess, which means now in our own culture of excess is a fabulous time for us to rediscover this practice. The core of simplicity is really what Jesus defines in Luke 12, seek first the kingdom of God. Richard Foster defined it as an inward reality of single-hearted focus upon God and his kingdom, which results in an outward lifestyle of modesty, openness, and unpretentiousness, and which disciplines our hunger for status, glamour, and luxury. Joshua Becker, a former pastor and a contemporary minimalist, calls it the intentional promotion of the things we most value and the removal of anything that distracts us from them. And Jan Johnson, a spiritual director, referred to simplicity just as intentionally arranging our life around God. Simplicity as a practice helps us to shape our lives to create margin. And out of that margin, we are able to live as non-anxious people of deep love and presence in a world that is often frazzled and cluttered. 
I want to be clear here that simplicity is also not just a way of skimming over the complexities of life and pretending that everything is easy. The opposite of simplicity is not complexity. The opposite of simplicity is shallowness. Simplicity is what enables us to go deep, to live a life of focus and deeply rooted contentment and joy, rather than a life that just skims the surface, that's shallow, distracted, and littered with short-term pleasures that can't really satisfy us. And this value of simplicity is so deeply interwoven with the way of Jesus that we're going to be teaching on this subject for the next five weeks. Because we want simplicity to be a core value in our community that will shape us into focused, peaceful, and generous people. But this idea of simplifying can start to spark some anxiety in our hearts. If we let things go, whether that be in our house or in our schedule, how do we know that we have enough? What, will we be kind, of, what kind of people will we become? But without simplicity, we put too much onto our hearts that we simply weren't designed to carry. We can't have everything, we can't do everything, and our hearts are limited. In his book, A Testament of Devotion, Thomas Kelly says this, we honestly feel the pull of many obligations and try to fulfill them all. And we are unhappy, uneasy, strained, oppressed, and fearful that we shall be shallow. We have hints that there is a way of life vastly richer and deeper than all this hurried existence, a life of unhurried serenity and peace and power. If only we could slip over into that center. We have seen and known some people who seem to have found this deep center of living, where the fretful calls of life are integrated, where no as well as yes can be said with confidence." Intentionally choosing to seek first the kingdom in all aspects of our lives with the practice of simplicity helps us to move into that deep center of living. And when we think about simplifying in practical terms, we often go right to like getting rid of stuff, decluttering, downsizing, and things like that. And those are all good things. But if we go straight to that, I think we've jumped the gun a little bit. We need to step back because it's not enough to just simplify. We need to simplify our lives around something. We need to simplify around that so that we can move into that holy center of deep living that Kelly talked about. We feel the pull of a lot of different internal and external desires all clamoring for our attention. And Richard Foster, who I've mentioned a few times, explains it really well. Within us is a whole conglomerate of selves, and all of those selves are rugged individualists. Each one screams to protect his or her vested interests. If a decision is made to spend a relaxed evening listening to Chopin, the business self and the civic self rise up in protest at the loss of precious time. The energetic self paces back and forth, impatient and frustrated, and the religious self reminds us of the lost opportunities for study or evangelistic contact. No wonder we overcommit ourselves and our schedules and live lives of frantic faithfulness. And I don't know about you, but the first time I heard the phrase frantic faithfulness was like cold water getting splashed into my face. That phrase describes my internal world all too well, feeling pulled in so many different directions and trying to keep up with too many things all at once. Just a few weeks ago, when my husband and I were visiting uh, my little sister in Flagstaff, and I was in such a flurry to get out the door on time and make sure that Joe had his jacket and blanket and diaper bag and all the other like baby accessories that you need, that I forgot my wallet, my jacket, and to tie one of my shoes. And that's a pretty lighthearted example. But we see this play out in much bigger ways across our lives. We desire too many things, even very good things. We spin too many plates, and it leaves us feeling fractured and exhausted. 
when we try to simplify, we might find ourselves stuck because we're already stretched too thin. We cannot simplify around everything. We have to integrate our whole selves around something, finding a focal point at which our souls can be at peace with reality. Jesus seeks our salvation, not just as fire insurance, but the healing and health of our very souls to come back into relationship with God, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in wholeness. But to do this, what do we integrate around? Many of the movies, TV shows, and media that we consume now tells us to look within ourselves for what to simplify around. And at the same time, millions, people are making millions off of that endless quest to find ourselves that we can't ever seem to quite finish. And unsurprisingly, Jesus offers us a different way. Jesus calls us to look within, but not to ourselves, to God. Jesus invites us into simplicity of heart, choosing at our inmost being to be integrated as a whole person with God at our center. Psalm 86:11 says this, Teach me your ways, O Lord, that I may live according to your truth. Grant me purity of heart so that I may honor you. The NIV translation of this verse says an undivided heart rather than purity of heart, which I think helps to illustrate this idea a little bit more. We are invited into a practice of simplifying our hearts such that they are pure and undivided, choosing to intentionally arrange the foundations of our lives around God so that we can find wholeness and peace. In this series, we're going to start with simplicity of heart today and over the next several weeks move outward to our schedules, to our things, things uh, to our pleasures, and to our speech. Because it's not enough to just simplify our closet or our social schedule. We have to choose to simplify around something. We have to choose to seek first the kingdom, to live in that inward reality of single-hearted focus upon God and his kingdom. And this is why we start with this practice of simplicity of heart, so that the rest of our kind of simplicity journey together reflects that single-hearted focus. Because what we center our hearts on defines who we become, for better or for worse. Steve Jobs, the inventor of many of the Apple products that we now find ourselves addicted to, was a famous minimalist. There's this well-known photo of him in this basically empty apartment listening to records alone. And by kind of the cultural understanding and standards of minimalism, he's rocking it here. But at the center of Job's life was not God or even any sort of relationship, but a single-minded focus to change the world through technology. And in that regard, and in, by many of the standards of our culture today, he was incredibly successful. But uh, relationally, Steve Jobs' life was very dark. In that empty apartment, there's no mess and there's no clutter but there's no friends or family there either. Because what we center our hearts on defines the person we become. So if we want to become people of focus, of contentment, and of generosity, we will need to simplify our hearts to reflect the source of all good things. We must seek the kingdom of God above all else. And we're gonna need to take some tangible steps in order to move towards the kingdom in our daily lives. Simplicity itself is a practice that helps us to move this from just a thought in our minds and hearts through our bodies out into the world. And there's not one way uh, or standard way of applying simplicity across all situations. We're all a bit different. But some core things remain true that I think will help to guide our practice here and I think we really need to keep in mind. First, we need to remember that consumerism and materialism are the dominant systems of meaning in our society right now. 
And in that system, we're told to use money, possessions, success, and distraction to fill the space that only God can fill. And second, there's a reciprocal relationship between how much stuff we own and how busy and distracted we are and our distance from that holy center of living. Our practice of simplicity individually and as a community is going to look different from person to person, and that's okay. But however we go about it, we need to address both of those things, both that external stranglehold of materialism and consumerism and the considerable internal power that our stuff and our schedules has over us. And as we start with simplifying our hearts, we need to identify the core values that we live around. And we're going to get to a practice of that soon. So first, I want you to take an inventory. How are you currently spending your time, money, and attention? Because from this inventory, we'll need to make an honest assessment about what values we're actually living out in our lives now. Because where you give your time, your money, and attention reveals what you actually value. If you'd like, you might consider asking someone you trust, like a spouse, a mentor, a good friend, and see what they would say your values are and make your assessment from there. Then consider what values you do want to simplify around, what things you want to keep or what things you want to add and what things you need to release in order to make that happen. Ultimately, the center for all of us is God, but God is good and able to hold a diversity of values that reflects that holy center and join into the work of the kingdom. Ask God for direction in what values to keep and what you need to let go of in order to have an undivided heart. And some examples of values you might consider simplifying around are things like hospitality, creative pursuits, adventure, caring for creation, practicality, or generosity. And obviously that is not an exhaustive list. We could spend a long time brainstorming more values there. But I want you that to help get you started. Choose three to five values to start. And just remember that not choosing something doesn't mean that you don't think it's important or that it never enters your rhythm at all, but simply that it's just not one of the kind of guiding values you shape your life around. And it might be really hard to limit yourself in this way, to only choose a few things. But remember that we ourselves are limited. We cannot do it all. And we are called into a life of depth and focus, not fractured distraction. In seeking the kingdom, we are learning to live for God's presence, to abide in the vine across all areas of our lives. Simplicity as a practice in the way of Jesus is not meant to only be reflected in our, what we would call our spiritual lives, but across all parts of it. Our relationship with Jesus, Jesus should seep into all aspects of our lives, not just how we are on Sunday mornings or at small group. As you spend time reflecting on the values you want to simplify your life around, Consider how those apply across your life, across your schedule, your house, your media consumption, and your budget. Your values or how you might live them might change from season to season, and that's okay. I'm in a season of shifting uh, what I need to simplify around with an infant. And while that's really hard work and it requires a lot of choices about what to let go and what I need to add in, it's worth it in order to live from that holy center of peace and power and hopefully to reflect that to my son as he grows up. And speaking of Joseph, I want to go back to my stroller example from earlier. At a certain point, I realized that I needed to make a decision based on A, not losing my marbles over a stroller because that would be sad, and B, on what Tyler and I actually valued, not just what some list on the internet told us we should buy. I love being outside, and I want to share that love of the outdoors with Joe. 
So we picked a stroller that has better wheels and suspension so that we could take him for walks in Sabino Canyon or go on the loop at the Desert Museum or even just walk around the kind of cracked and bumpy streets of Tucson more easily. Could we have chosen a stroller that folds up smaller or has more space or any number of other good options? Yeah, absolutely. But what helped to simplify our decision was to choose based on what we actually valued and how we wanted to shape our lives with our son. And I'll be honest, simplifying is hard work. Choosing to live out our values, to say no to kind of the litany of activities and calls to accumulate more that the world gives us, to remain in that holy center of peace requires much of us. But God is faithful to meet us where we're at and will remind us over and over of God's goodness, provision, and presence in our lives. We seek first the kingdom because that is where God is. God is there and faithful to give us what we need without us having to hustle or strive for it. And I hope that these next several weeks as we go through this journey of simplicity are life-giving for you, that we learn to release the things that we've been using to prop up our worth or satisfaction or security. And in that, we're able to find what the good life really is, the one that Jesus has been inviting us into all along. As Teresa of Avila, a Catholic nun and reformer of the church said, all things pass, but God never changes. He who find, has God finds that he lacks nothing. God alone suffices. Let's pray. God, I just pray for your presence and your direction as we start this journey of simplicity as a community. Um, I pray today and in this coming week that you help to guide us in what values we have been living and what values you call us into, God. Help us to have an undivided heart, purity of heart that follows you, that places you at the center so we can seek first your kingdom and see and trust you that all else will fall into place. Help us to remember that we do not have to build our own barns, that you are there and you provide for us, God, that you, will you tell us that you will not fail or abandon us. Help us to trust you and to learn to live out of that place of trust rather than a mindset of scarcity or fear. We thank you, Lord. We love you. And in your son's holy and precious name, amen. Thank you for joining the Damascus Road podcast. Our mission is to follow Jesus together by being with God, loving everyone, transforming people, developing leaders, growing new ministries, and changing the world. You can find out more about us online at DamascusRoadTucson.com.